0: Now, Matthew tells us here that the things that he is recording in these verses happened while Jesus was saying certain things. That's the way verse 18 begins. Now, what was he was saying? What is is Matthew referring to there? Well, we have to go back to verse 14 to see that. In verses 14 through 17, we read, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do you and the Pharisees, or why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, this is actually when the disciples of John, the forerunner, come to Jesus. This is the third objection that he's dealing with in this chapter. And it's the third argument brought to him, and Jesus' answer to those arguments are here for us. The first two uh, come from the jealous and petty Pharisees. And this one, as I mentioned already, from the disciples of John the Forerunner. And one of the things we see as we look at this and, and see this opposition to Jesus coming again and again and again is that opposition tends to sharpen understanding. And so with each one of these questions, each one of these challenges, the answer that Jesus gives makes things clearer. And it gives an opportunity for those who hear and understand the word to understand better what it is that Jesus is saying and what it is that's being preached. So far in answering the Pharisees, Jesus has asserted his power, to forgive sins. It's one of the things that has come to the forefront. He says to them in uh, chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? And this is because he's told a man who's crippled to get up. Uh, He's told a man who's crippled that his sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees challenge that, and they say, only God can forgive sins, and so can this man forgive sins? And Jesus answers and says, Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? He's getting them to think about that in their minds. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And realizing that in their minds they're thinking, Well, which of those two things is harder? And then Jesus immediately says this and this man walks. Secondly, he explains because of an objection brought forward his readiness to receive sinners. So, the first is his power to forgive sins, and the next one is his readiness to forgive sinners. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, uh, he has gone to Matthew's house. He's eating with uh, tax collectors and other people that the Pharisees frown upon, and they are offended by it, and they express their offense. To themselves in their own hearts. And we read then in verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, so far in these little tests or challenges, he's shown his authority and power to forgive sin, now his willingness to do it, uh, his desire that sinners should come to him. And that brings us to this third objection. And in the third instance, the question is raised by the disciples of John. And it occasions a lesson on Christ's tenderness towards his own. And that's really what comes out here. This discourse. Of course, in detail is a matter for another time. But let me just say that Jesus offers two explanations for the objections that they raise. And you remember what the objection is. Why do we fast and you and your disciples don't? And um, the fact that the disciples are not fasting, Jesus, through this discourse that he gives, demonstrates that it's not the appropriate time for them to fast. They will. The day will come when they will, when he's no longer with them, but this isn't the hour for them to be fasting. And the second part of what he says, when he talks about the wineskins and so on, is that they're not ready to be fasting in that way. They're not at the point yet where they're ready to carry on that duty in the way that it will need to be carried out after he is gone. In other words, they could enter into fasting now, but their hearts aren't, aren't the right place yet. Peter fasting at this point, I don't know what his heart would be in it. Christ knew what his heart would be. But Peter fasting after his betrayal, and after his restoration, and after Christ's sacrifice, and after his resurrection, you're going to find a different Peter fasting at that point. And so what Jesus is saying is um, they're coming along. And as they come along, they'll come to that point where they will fast too. But it will be a fast in the appropriate time and in a proper way. And so that's kind of what, just generally, that's just a brief statement of that. Because that's not really what we're looking at here this afternoon. We're looking again at what Christ is seeing. So it's while Jesus is saying these things that a ruler of the synagogue comes and kneels down before him. The story of Christ and this ruler is also really worthy of our attention, but it's not the direct object of our uh, concern this afternoon. It's what happens as Jesus is following the ruler to his house to attend to his daughter that catches our eye. That's what really we want to look at. But just two brief observations here, now, two things that we want to make as we, before we take up that moment in between when he gets up and starts following the, the ruler to his house and when he gets to the house. The first thing that we want to say is that the argument about fasting and ceremonies very quickly gives way here to the urgency of life. It quickly falls into the background when this ruler comes and kneels before Jesus and pleads for his daughter's life. Um, It's the the point of attention up to that moment until this man comes and falls down in front of Jesus and says, My daughter is dead or dying, and I need you to come and to heal him. Life is more than food and the body more than clothing, Jesus says in Luke 12.23. And by ordering this providence for this moment, a message is really given to the disciples of John by the hand of God. Um, He is conveying to them this matter of ceremonies, fasting, whether you're going to fast and when you're going to fast and how you're going to fast, it has its place. But more important is life. And the life of this child supersedes that. Job 12, 13 says, with God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding and he orders things accordingly. Secondly, don't miss the contrast here between the ruler's appeal and his faith and the woman that Jesus looks on as he passes by, the woman who touches him. He says of uh, her, my daughter has, uh, the um ruler says to Jesus, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. That's his expression of faith. If you come, you come with me, come to the house, and lay your hand on her, she will be uh, restored, and she will live. This woman who comes up behind Jesus and touches him, look at what she says. If I only touch his garment." I will be made well. He doesn't have to come anywhere. He doesn't have to touch me. All I need to do is touch him, and I will be healed. <clears throat> so you see degrees of faith here. Both expectations are met with grace and mercy. In both, in both cases, the healing takes place. But their faith wasn't alike in its expression or its strength in strength in these two people. Isaiah 42.3, the prophet says famously, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment and truth. He doesn't, on his way to go heal this girl, stop after the woman touches him and turn around and say to the ruler, Have you had faith like that? She'd get healed. You should have exercised this kind of faith. Now he goes and he does what the man requests and, and brings forth life again. He's not going to judge the degree of their faith in these contrasting circumstances. So now we come to his incarnate humility again in the eyes of Jesus. As we take another look at the things Jesus saw with his incarnate eyes, we're reminded of his humility and his grace towards, whole, towards us. This whole scene is really instructive, because we, hear, we see here the Son of God once again walking among the clouds, among the crowds, like we did last time. excuse me, mingling with the people, carrying himself in their eyes as one of them. The God who made us takes on our nature and chooses to live among us as one who had no form or majesty that we should um, look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He's right there in the midst of this crowd as one of the crowd. Um, I know when Hollywood uh, wants to portray Jesus, they always give him a little aura about him or a little glow or a little gleam in the eye that makes him look different from everyone else. But In truth, he is unassumingly awesome at this moment. I think we can easily see the uniqueness of this circumstance. On the one hand, he's so unassuming in his incarnate countenance that the Pharisees are not afraid to complain about him. They're not afraid to even challenge him to his face. They're not afraid to walk right up to him and ask him questions that are designed to humiliate him. Now, if he has some sort of aura about him and a majesty that naturally shows, that's not going to be the way people who are going to be critical are going to approach him. Even John's disciples aren't afraid to confront and challenge Jesus. Explain to us, how is it that your disciples don't fast and we do? If he had removed the veil of his flesh for only an instant, they would have been consumed. They could not and would not dare to question or to challenge him at all. There would be no need for him to answer their silly questions, to deal with their um, petulant arguments, their efforts to entrap him, or in the case of John's disciples, even to explain himself. If he just dropped that veil for an instant, they would all fall back and and would not dare to challenge him. You might recall this exchange between God and Moses. It's in Exodus chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Moses says, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But these men are right in the face of Jesus as he humbles himself in his incarnation and stands before his critics. He walks with men and women. He allows himself to be confronted and challenged by them. And while he's answering the disciples of John, who, if they had any real grasp of what John was saying and teaching, and who Jesus really was, would have been falling at his feet themselves. While he's doing that, a ruler of the synagogue of the Jews named Jarius humbles himself and kneels before the Savior and pleads for the life of his daughter. And so do you see the, the unassuming awesomeness there? On the one hand those who hate him are not afraid to challenge him on the other hand this ruler of the synagogue who recognizes that there's something different about him falls on his feet uh, falls at his feet and begs for his help and so one is worshiping the others are challenging the one sees his majesty the others refuse to see it but that's where we pick up the story and we read that Jesus rose and followed him, that is the ruler, with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. While it's still extraordinary in a sense that Jesus would even stand up and follow a ruler of the people in the context of the circumstances, one might think that that was such an urgent appeal from such a worthy parent that everything and anything and everyone else would be secondary. What I'm trying to say there is the fact that Jesus would get up and follow this ruler when he is who he is as the son of God, very God of very God, is an extraordinary thing. But giving that he does do that and he breaks off this conversation with the disciples of the forerunner in order to attend to this matter you would think that there and the girl's dying if she's not dead already you would think there would be a compelling urgency there that would force him to say i can't delay i can't wait for anything i have to keep going but because the 12 year the ruler's 12 year old daughter is dead or dying and the only hope of life rests in the attention and purpose of Christ himself and so you would think that that would Push him forward, and there wouldn't be time to talk to this woman or even to give her any attention. But in typical fashion, you find here that the one that John knew to be the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, has a heart for a poor, sickly, insignificant woman. He's attending to a child, he's attending to a child who's dying or is dead already. He is attending to this child who is the child of one of the significant people in the community, a ruler of the synagogue, who has an important religious position. And here is this woman who's been sick for 12 years, who is sickly, who is now poor, and holds no significant position. And you would think that he would just pass by to take care of that urgent matter and not worry about her. But he has eyes for this poor sickly woman. She had suffered much at the hands of many physicians and she'd spent a fortune seeking a cure. A.T. Robertson makes the observation that it is possible that Jesus often wrought many cures on the wing, so to speak, as he moved among the crowds. But this one, he stops and makes something special out of. We get more information from the other Gospels. and we consult them, we know that as Jesus moved through the streets in this errand, he was thronged, we're told. That the crowds thronged him, pushed up against him, filled in all the empty spaces. But in this case, the woman is following him in this throng of people. And in the midst of all this throng, she reaches out and touches touches his garment from behind. And as Mark explains, as soon as in his incarnate nature the Savior perceives her touch, he stops, and he begins surveying the crowd and asking, who touched my garment? So... We're on this urgent course, right, to go save this life. And this touch comes, and Jesus stops in the midst of this throng. Everybody stopping while he stops, and he says, who touched my garment? And Mark says in chapter 5 and verse 31, his disciples at that point look at him, and they say, you see the crowd (laughs) pressing around you, And yet you say, who touched me? Uh, It could have been any one of them. Look at all of them all around here. The the whole crowd is pressing in, and you say, who touched you? We're stopping to talk about who touched you? And look at what they say. You see the crowd. How are you going to pick out of all these people who it was that touched you? I don't know about you, but I find that a strange thing for Peter and Nathaniel, to say, two of his disciples, who we assume were with him on this trip, didn't he see Nathaniel sitting under the tree by himself before he was introduced to him? Didn't he know who Peter was before he was actually ever introduced to Peter or saw him? So for Peter and Nathaniel to say, why are you asking who in the, how could you pick out in this crowd? Well, the same way I picked you out when you weren't anywhere near by that same authority and power. Nevertheless, Mark goes on to say, and he looked around to see who had done it. And now we're told, and he saw her. Jesus turned back now in Matthew, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When his incarnate eye fell on her, he knew and understood it was her that she was the one whose faith had made her well. And there's just three observations here that I wanna share with you this afternoon. There are all sorts of lessons uh, in regard to the circumstances of her healing and and the things that are said. And we'll be looking at those in a different context perhaps here shortly. Um, uh, In the moments left to us now though, I want you to think first about faith even in the most humble of Christ's own, catches the eye and the heart of the Savior despite appearances. The exercise of faith in the most humble of those who are around him catches his ear and his heart despite circumstances. Now, what I mean by the appearances despite, in this case, the appearance of the petitioner. She was a long-time sufferer. She had sought all other means possible before coming to Christ. She was obviously desperate, and yet she catches the eye of mercy. Catches his eye of mercy, despite all that. In Ezekiel 34... Verses 11 through 16, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." they shall feed on the mountains of Israel i myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and i myself will make them lie down declares the lord god i will seek the lost and i will bring back the strayed and i will bind up the injured and i will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong i will destroy i will feed them in justice now here is this promise of the lord that he he will come in mercy to those who are injured and who are weak. And that's the case with this woman. She's not the daughter of a ruler of the synagogue. She's just a poor woman who's been suffering and has been ground into poverty by her illness. And yet despite that, the savior looks on her with mercy. Also, despite the fact that it might appear that he's always going on to help those counted by us to be more worthy, it's not so. She was content to touch the garment, if possible. It was perhaps in her mind that that was the best she could hope for when uh, she was about to do this, that he was on this great task. The least I can do is just touch his garment and perhaps he will heal me. And the idea there is that it may have appeared that he was on a mission for somebody else but he had time for her as well. And it's the same for us. We may perceive the Lord to be on great errands, doing great things, but he has time for us. He has time to hear us, he has time to heal us, he has time to show us mercy. Secondly, <coughs> though modest souls resolve quietly to creep to heaven, unknown to others, they cannot hide from the eye of the Savior who will make his work in them brought to light for his own glory, says David Dixon. So in this case, um, you you see that's very carefully said by Matthew that she approached him from behind, modestly, hoping not really to be seen by him or anybody else. And if that was her hope, it's all lost (laughs) because we all know about it. We all know this story. And if she was hoping just to sneak up and get a blessing from the Lord without drawing any attention to herself or, or being even seen in what she was doing, she was wrong. Approaching him in that direction, not by chance or from necessity, but for the purpose of escaping observation, Dixon says. Those who seek the favor of the Lord need to be ready to be on display for his glory. We can't hide from him, and we can't hide his blessings to us. And you can't miss that while he's on the way to heal the daughter of the ruler, he acknowledges the faith of his own daughter. You get that point, right? That he's on the way to heal the daughter of the ruler, but he stops and says to her, daughter, my daughter, your faith has made you well. She may have concluded that having once been a woman of health and some wealth, she might have approached Jesus as the ruler did. But now, sickly and poverty-stricken, she may have imagined that this was the most she might dare to do. But if so, she was gravely mistaken, for Christ was ready not only to help her, but to own her. And he does it in the most public of ways. In Psalm 144, verses 12 through 15, it says, may our, sons, uh, may our sons in their youth be like plants full-grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousand in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And of all the things that could have happened in that moment, for Jesus to turn to her and call her daughter was among the most precious things that could have been said. And it shows the situation, doesn't it? We're going to heal the daughter of the ruler of the the synagogue, a very important person. And Jesus says, I'm healing my daughter here, a person just as important in my eyes. And then lastly, to be in the gracious view of the Savior by faith is a state full of blessing. She came trembling and secretly, but she found a sweet welcome and was comforted and commended for her faith in the midst of her trial and before everybody. Matthew writes that seeing her or looking right at her, he says to her, be of good cheer. This woman has been suffering for 12 years. This woman who has lost everything she owns and trying to get herself well. Jesus turns to her and says, be of good cheer. And you can be sure that her heart was filled with cheer when she knew that she was healed. And that she was seen as the daughter of this wonderful, gracious, loving one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to get the whole picture in mind to get the full force of the matter in heart. This poor woman would not have been seen in the court of the women at the temple. Her illness precluded her from any public contact according to the law. She had been shut out from the public worship of the Lord, from all corporate worship. She'd been rendered ceremonially unclean by it. And she wouldn't have been able even to take advantage of the comforts offered by the Lord through that corporate worship. But now, she is not only healed, but she is recognized as a beloved daughter of the God she loves and worships, her condition was, indeed, Thomas says, a pitiable one, without health and without the means of substance, subsistence, wasted, worn and shunned, the child of suffering and want, just sinking into the chilly gloom of despair. But though she would have been excluded by the law, she's welcomed by grace. And so it is with every one of us. When Jesus told her to be of good cheer, he not only wished it for her, he worked it into her heart and her conscience. That's why it's good to make the Lord our first line of inquiry or appeal. Proverbs 10.22 says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. When your life is hid with Christ and God, You will live there, whatever amount of the world's possessions may be attached outside. And though in some social concussion, all the world's thick clay should drop off. You will scarcely be sensible of a change if you have put on Christ. Great riches may come and go. You will not be clogged while you have them. You will not be naked when they leave. It's William Arnott's comments on the blessing of the Lord making us rich. This woman is enriched because Jesus looks on her and shows her that love which only he can show through his mercy and love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the things that are illustrated for us here. Lord, we know that you are about great things. And, Lord, we know that uh, there are important things going on in regards to the work of the kingdom and, Lord, the fulfilling of your will in nations and among men. But The promise is that you are still ready to hear us, to look on us, to care for us, to provide for us, even when we call upon you. We're not significant. We're not important in this world but we are important to you. And we thank you for this blessed illustration of that fact. And we pray, Lord, it will strengthen and encourage and rejoice our hearts as we see this dear woman made well and told to be of good cheer. We Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name.